On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. I'm very excited to talk to today's guest, Dr. Daniel Hammermesh, who is a distinguished scholar at Barnard College and Columbia University and the chief coordinator of the IZA Institute of Labor Economics Network. Thanks for making time for us today and welcome to the show. Seth, thank you very much for having me here. Yeah, I'm really glad uh, you were able to come on and I'm really excited to talk about this very interesting paper you recently published in JPAM. The name of the paper is Same-Sex Couples and the Gains to Marriage, The Importance of the Legal Environment. The, the title's pretty descriptive. You and your colleague, Scott Delomer, currently an economist at Amazon, study the impact of the legalization of same-sex marriage on the marital surplus or the benefits that same-sex couples derive from the relationship. Uh, so first off, I imagine many of our listeners are wondering what in the world is marital surplus? What do we mean by that? How do we conceptually think about it? How do we measure it? And, and most importantly, how do you measure it in the study? Of course. First of all, let's be very clear on this. Marital surplus arises with any couple's marriage. Certainly in my own case, I've been married for 54 years. And because my wife have invested in that, and I have invested in our relationship, we make a much more efficient way of behaving, of doing things than we did when we started out in 1966, or than I would do if, God forbid, I got matched with anybody else suddenly. Just to give you one example, this is a trivial example, but we are very efficient at doing laundry. I do sorting, and she's learned not to trust me with anything other than sorting and transferring certain things from the laundry to the dryer. This Efficiency came about after I proceeded to dry her silk blouse once about 30 years ago, which is not something one wants to do. The same thing is true with any couple. I mean, you build a relationship and you build a way of doing things more efficiently, of enjoying things together more, but it takes time. And you don't do it. That's the surplus. But you don't do it unless you see you're going to be together long enough that it makes sense to invest in this kind of improvement in your life. Yeah, and that example reminds me of the the basic econ concept of comparative advantage. Each person in the relationship, you know, specializes in what they're relatively good at, and you're relatively good at sorting. I am relatively good at sorting, but I'm absolutely bad at everything. That's why relative is so important, because she's she's better at doing the fancy stuff. I'm better at doing the very stupid little stuff. Same thing when we cook. She does good cooking. I chop vegetables every once in a while. It's exactly the same story. Yep. And so, yeah, I mean, this is true in all relationships, platonic and romantic, I, I'd imagine, too, um, and, and relationships at work and, and the whole thing. But this case is pretty interesting. And if I understand right, the backstory here is that you were an expert witness in a court case where you argued that a primary function of marriage is to create stable households. And like we just said, that economic theory suggests that legalizing same-sex marriage would incentivize same-sex couples to invest more in their relationships and 
like we said, those investments will lead to more committed and more stable and ultimately more prosperous unions. It's a feedback relationship. If I know as a same-sex couple that we're going to be possibly together for a long time now, that gives me an incentive as a member of that couple to invest in this kind of relationship and benefit from it even more. But the neat thing is because of that investment that the long possible relationship encourages me to do, that investment by itself will make the relationship last longer because there's now even more to be gained by staying married than there would be by separating. So what this kind of law does is it gives incentives to people to work together, benefit each other, and those benefits then feed back into the partnership to make it stay together even longer. The case I was in, I think it was called Perry et al. v. Schwarzenegger, that's Arnold et al., uh, in California, it evolved out of Proposition 8 in 2008, where there was a state referendum which voted to disallow same-sex marriage, and the government, Schwarzenegger, who in fact was against the defendants, even though he was the named defendant, he was in favor of the plaintiffs, they were sued by the plaintiffs. This was one of several suits that went on roughly at that time, and they were all sort of pushed together and made into the case Windsor v. United States, which was decided by the Supreme Court in 2013, which allowed same-sex marriage. It wasn't the case that actually allowed same-sex marriage, but it didn't prevent it. Case in 2015 allowed sex, mandated same-sex marriage everywhere across the country. And the theoretical argument that you made in that case, you're basically empirically testing that argument in the JPAM article that we're talking about today. Uh, is that right? That's exactly what I'm doing. Usually in economics, we have a theory and we test it pretty quick. Like I just threw out this theory as a way of justifying same-sex marriage. The reason being California had and the Prop 8 didn't disallow domestic partnerships so what I had to do was think of why would domestic partnerships not lead to the same kind of investment in the relationship that same-sex marriage would, and thus why might a same-sex couple be worse off under domestic partnership than under same-sex marriage legality? And the answer is the same-sex marriage legality gives the incentive to produce more for the couple because they are going to be together, or they believe they're going to be together longer. And it took a few years since the court case, but you did get around to testing this theory. And so why don't you give us an overview of what you and Scott find in the paper? Okay. Look, the reason it took me 10 years or 11 years to get involved testing the theory is there were no good data that would allow you to do this, okay? So as part of some other project I was working on at the time, I think I remember which one it was, it isn't so long ago. I was using something called the American Communities Survey, which is an annual survey in the U.S. of about a million households, which replaced, I was probably too young to remember this, there was a tremendous controversy right before the 2000 census with the Republicans not wanting to have 5% of the population fill out a very long census form. And they won. They no longer have that long-form census. But instead of that, the Census Bureau created the ACS. So we now get, instead of about five or six million households every 10 years, 
we now get a million households every year. So by me, what the Republicans did actually enabled me and other economists and social scientists to get much more data on an annual basis than we would have gotten the other way. So for researchers, the Republican action, which they thought was going to make life easy for themselves and hard for people doing research and the government, in fact, made life much easier for those of us who try to do research. So we use these data, the reason being that there's so many people and there's an indication of whether you're married. There's also information of how long you've been together. There's also information on the sex of both partners. Indeed, there's even an indicator of whether it's a same-sex partnership. So we have about 20,000 people who say they're in same-sex partnerships. We know what state they're living in, and we know how long they've been together. Okay? So with those data, essentially I could test exactly what we're talking about, what I was talking about in that expert report, because we know in each state when same-sex marriage was legalized, many states, about one half of the population was covered by same-sex marriage legality before the 2015 Obergefell Supreme Court case, which legalized it nationwide, and other ones were covered by domestic partnership legality. So we could look at, for example, comparing a domestic partner pair before it became legal to after it became legal, and comparing each of them to a couple in a state where neither was legal to another couple in the state after legality was a, became possible for same-sex marriages. So we're basically doing a comparison across people in the same state before and after they adopted same-sex marriage legality, before and after they adopted domestic partnership legality. And what do you find when you make those comparisons? Well, we looked at two different outcomes. The first outcome was adjust for everything that we know makes some people earn more and others earn less, like their education, their age, regrettably their race, ethnicity, where they live, blah, blah, blah. Anything we could think of that was in the data, we would adjust for that. And then ask the question, given whether same-sex marriage is legal where they are or not, and given how long they've been together, the extra years together when same-sex marriage is allowed give you a higher income. Presumably it does so because of the incentives the same-sex marriage law gives you to invest. So one of the outcomes we look at is income adjusted for everything else. The other is, and I think it's a better one actually, is whether you own a home or not. Owning a home is a commitment to a community and a commitment to each other. And we found in both cases, those legalizations, A, gave people, the longer they'd been together under legal same-sex marriage, a higher income. And the longer they'd been together under legal same-sex marriage, a greater likelihood of owning a house. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about how exactly does one invest in the relationship? Or do you have an example of what an investment would look like over the long-term relationship? <laughs> the trivial one I gave you is the one before. We invested in educating me not to burn my wife's silk blouses in the dryer. That's an investment. She had, to, she had to spend time schooling me. We had to pay the cost of a new silk blouse. I mean, I could give you other examples, but that one seems, to make a bad pun, quite hot. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, it, so it's more than just specialization. 
it's learning what your partner is good at, what your partner could be better at, helping them get better. Yeah. And what you can be better at, but it's not just in doing household tasks. I mean, people do not get together because they're relatively differently efficient in household tasks. They get together, and it's much harder to test this, they get together because they enjoy doing things together and they get more out enjoyment out of doing things with somebody. And even without that person, they've learned from that person how to enjoy it. For example, I was not overly religious when I got married. I'd become more so because my wife is more religious. And I've learned about the religion from her and spend time on it. That makes me happier. It certainly makes her happier. But it's a result of our being together and essentially investing in that relationship for all these years. You can go down one after the other, be it consumption things or doing things around the house. They all work this way. Yeah, I, I really like that. That's a great example, the religion example of investing. Okay, so I buy that and I think it's very intuitive that the legalization of same-sex marriages increased the incentives to invest and so it seems like we find evidence that that happened. While I was reading the paper, though, the other idea that I found myself thinking about is that aside from that incentive to invest, isn't there also a story just about happiness or a lack of stress knowing that your relationship is legitimate and viewed as legitimate by the state? And if that's happening, then you're going to be happier, more productive, Otherwise, is that a distinct channel from the investment? And, and is that something that you've thought about at all? Yeah, we've thought about that. And basically what we have is a theory of investment, which the investment is incentivized by the ability to know that you'll be together longer. What we really have, however, is a black box. In other words, the law changes. And the more time we spend under that protection, the better off we'll be whether it's because people are spending their time specializing more and learning about each other or because they're simply happier because they know their relation is sanctioned by the state, we simply can't tell. I like to do economic theories. I believe economics characterizes behavior. But in the end, there's a black box with which an economic behavior or some sociological happiness talk, and there's no theory there, would produce the same outcome. But the empirical fact is that spending more time together as a same-sex couple in a state where same-sex marriage is legalized leads to these positive outcomes. Yeah, agreed. I think the evidence is quite compelling, and I think that the uh, investment story is definitely part of why that's happening. So the thing I was surprised about, though, is that there's much less of an effect for civil unions and domestic partnerships. And I was a little surprised by that. Were you? And why do you think that is? Well, anything you do in economics, you start off with a theory. My theory, my hope was those would be better than nothing in terms of raising people's outcomes, such as home ownership and income, but wouldn't have the same strong effect as legalizing same-sex unions, same-sex marriage would. So I was expecting some effect, but not as big as the effect for marriage. And so I didn't, we didn't get that. We got essentially no effect of domestic partnership, maybe one-tenth as large. And the question is why? And of course, you make up a story. The story I'll make up is that, in fact, very clearly, groups lobbying for same-sex marriage 
very clearly feel precisely that it is much better for dom than domestic partnership. Indeed, that's how I got in the case in California in the first instance 13 years ago. So in a sense, it's not so surprising because the evidence from what people who were lobbying for this are interested in suggests they think it's a much different animal having legalized same-sex marriage compared to legalized domestic union partnerships or civil unions. The revealed behavior of those who care about this suggests this result may not be so surprising. Uh, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. That makes a lot of sense. If the civil unions were working and, and that's all that was needed, there wouldn't be such a push. Uh, I buy that. It's a story. I don't know. I can't prove it, but at least it's a consistent story with all the behaviors we've seen. Yeah, no, it's consistent, and I, I think it does make sense. So I think these are pretty compelling results um, and pretty striking results. It seems like the legalized same-sex marriage really boosted this marital surplus, the happiness and, and returns to a long-term partnership. And we talked. A, you talked a little bit about how you are comparing across states and before and after the states adopted the policy change. Something we always pay attention to on the podcast is, is this effect, is this difference a causal effect or is it possibly uh, spurious and driven by something else? And I think that you and Scott are very careful to do a whole bunch of sensitivity analyses that really... I, I found convincing in, in ruling out alternative explanations of the results. And there's too many to discuss uh, on the podcast here. I encourage our listeners to read the paper and, and see everything that they do. But one concern in particular I did have was, especially in a, in a high-profile case like this, were you worried at all about couples or individuals moving and strategically moving to states that either were already or planning to make same-sex marriages legal? We worried about this tremendously. It's obviously a criticism we got early on. The best we could do about it was we did know where people were the year before. So we dropped people who were in a different state the year before they were observed, okay, in the, in the data we have. It made absolutely no difference at all. I mean, seriously, literally almost no difference. So I don't, that's the best we can do. It may be the case, but another thing we looked at was, let's assume that people who are better off, more educated, are more likely to be moving. So restrict the data to those who were less educated who are less likely to be moving across states for the privilege of getting married. That didn't change the results either. Do it for minorities, blacks and Hispanics. And in fact, the impacts for them was bigger than the impact on white and non-Hispanics. So I really don't think the migration issue was important here. It was not causing, no, it was not producing our results. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. And that is definitely reassuring. The other big, I'll call it a placebo test, a robustness check that you do, is that you look for a quote-unquote effect of the same-sex marriage law change on heterosexual couples. Why would you do that, uh, and what did you find, and how does that bolster our credibility in the estimated effects of the law change? Well, if it were the case that what we're finding is something unique to a state after compared to before, and had nothing to do with same-sex marriage— 
then if we looked at the impact on income and housing ownership before and after same-sex marriage became legal among only heterosexual couples, okay, we would then find exactly the same effect as we found for same-sex couples. And in fact, we did not find the same effect. There was a difference. It was a little bit of difference, but it was tiny compared to the effect we find looking at same-sex couples before and afterward. So that was what we call placebo test. It ruled out the possibility that something else was going on here, independent of the sex of the two partners in the marriage. Right. And uh, some of our astute listeners might be reminded of the difference in differences design for estimating causal effects that we talked about a couple episodes ago with Dr. Cox in trying to net out pre-existing differences between states. So yeah, I, I appreciated that analysis and I, again, found it pretty compelling. Again, I encourage our listeners to, to check out the paper. There's a whole battery of different checks that the authors do that really, I think, paint a pretty compelling picture. One last technical point I want to talk about before we, we move on to policy implications is the data set. And you mentioned the backstory of the ACS, the American Community Survey. It's publicly available. Um, it's nationally representative, covers all 50 states. Are there any other aspects of the data set that you want to mention? Yeah, sure. The biggest advantage of it's a heck of a lot of people. I mean, look, the incidence of gay marriages, at least as reported, is about 0.4%. It may be as high as 0.7 in some surveys, but it's a tiny fraction of all marriages. And therefore, in order to use, find data that allows us to analyze questions about same-sex marriages, we needed a very, very large survey in order to get a sufficiently large number of same-sex partnerships. The American Community Survey is the only one that's remotely usable for this purpose. And a thornier problem is identifying who is actually in the relationship and how long said relationship is, uh, as well as sexual orientation. Some of those are sensitive questions that we might worry about the accuracy of in these big surveys, how exactly do you determine length of relationship, sexual orientation, who the partner is? Is that explicitly asked by the survey or, or do you back that out some other way? No, those are both. Ex it doesn't ask sexual orientation, but it asks for the sex of each partner. Okay. Okay. Now, there's no question there may be other people, male-female partnerships, where one of them is bisexual. One of them might be same-sex oriented, but that's still an opposite-sex partnership. So we assume that the people both as male or both as female will assume for our purposes that it's a same-sex marriage if it's, an, if it's an illegal marriage state. Okay, Their actual sexual orientation, we don't know. I don't think it matters for our purpose. In terms of the length of the relationship, both partners say how long they've been together. Now, we ruled out any couple where the answers the members of the couple gave differed from one another, which was, in fact, very, very infrequent. We also ruled out couples who live in a nursing home or an assisted living facility or any kind of group quarters. These people are all living together with either children or typically no children. But these are just people who are in 
a relationship, say they've been in a relationship for the same length of time. Obviously, before 2015, they may have said they were married, but they obviously couldn't have been legally married. But they do tell you when they got together, you know, the duration of the marriage. And do the two partners answer the ACS survey together at the same time? Typically, no. Okay. We were in the ACS. Uh, I think the second year it went out. And I know we each did it separately. But what other people do, I don't know. I worry that there is some of that thing. But my guess is, look, doing it together on these two questions, I shouldn't think causes problems. I mean, they can help each other remember how long they've been together, which most people remember very well. I don't think that's a real difficulty. And in terms of sexual orientation, all you have to put is your sex, male, female, or other. And I think each person is not going to disagree with the other on what the answer to that question is. Huh. I'm surprised. I I would have thought that some people, not that they're wrong, but there could be ambiguity about when a, a formal relationship started, maybe. So it's interesting that there's such agreement on the length of the relationship. You wonder about that. I think you're quite right. There is some concern about that. But look, as in any research, if there were that kind of problem, let's say there is, if it were substantial, it would mean we would get results which are garbage. We would find nothing. It just muddies up the results. The fact we find this thing by itself tells me, absent any other problems with our research, that the problem you raise is minor and isn't causing our results. Because if it were major, it'd be screwing up the results totally. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's a good lesson and reminder for our listeners, um, and some of them are doing research themselves or reading research themselves, is uh, not to let minor potential problems derail the broader project. There's always going to be a tiny bit of measurement error or whatever, and and it's uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty minor point. Uh, and you're right, you still get precise estimates. I agree with you, but I remember one needs to keep these things in mind. And in any such case, think, what is the direction of effect on our results? Is it producing the results or is it making things worse than they truly are? In every such case, every such problem, we need to think about the direction of the impact on the result we get compared to the truth. That's a crucial thing researchers do. Simply saying that, oh, there's a problem, therefore this is rubbish, that's lousy. That's just bad research. It's cheap talk. But need to, people need to think about the problems involved. Yep, for sure. Well said. So it's good data, good research design. I think the uh, results are pretty clear and quite robust. Let's take this time to, as we wrap up, just to recap the main findings. What are the two or three main things you'd like our listeners to come away from today's podcast with? Sure. First of all, the legalization of same-sex marriage benefited same-sex couples by giving them incentives to make their relationship better. That resulted in the higher incomes for the couples who were benefited by legalized same-sex marriage and greater likelihood of home ownership. That's finding number one. Finding number two was that civil unions slash domestic partnerships being legal did not do the same thing. They had very little impact on people's incomes in same-sex marriages or their likelihood of owning a house. Finding number three is that the effect of same-sex marriage legalization on incomes and on likelihood of homeownership appears to be greater 
for male same-sex couples than for female same-sex couples. It's there for female same-sex couples, but the gain appears to be much smaller. Do you have any thoughts about why that might be? None whatsoever. Okay. That's pretty interesting difference. We will leave that for future research. How might advocates use these findings in debates around legal protections for same-sex marriage? This is a, an issue that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Sadly, it's still around. I would have thought that the 2015 Supreme Court decision would put this would have put this one to bed once and for all. But I know there are right-wing advocates who see the packed Supreme Court that Trump created as being a golden opportunity to overturn the 2015 decision. Okay, and you know, if you don't care about same-sex couples, you say, "Yeah, let's penalize them." by overturning the legalization of same-sex marriage, then you shouldn't care about the results of this research. But if you do care about people involved, what this research shows is that they do benefit, and thus that same-sex marriage does benefit same-sex couples. The only question is, well, back up. Let's say that's one little bit of evidence that suggests if we need to think about people, they're benefiting from it, and it's not surprising, therefore, that they care about it. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't care about the individuals, is there an argument about higher incomes and higher tax revenue that this is a, a net positive for society? Yes, of course that's true. It's not just higher income, higher tax revenue. It's also the case that people owning a house means they're more committed to a community and will invest in that community. There are all kinds of spillovers. The tax thing I don't think is very important. That's just a transfer of money from one person to the government to spend on something else. But the notion of owning a house is a true social benefit, and that's something important. But I'm quite sure that, look, the people who don't like same-sex marriage would argue that's trivial compared to the fact that I'm grossly offended by having two males being married or two females being married. I'm quite sure that pure prejudice will certainly dominate any notion of social benefits that's produced by this kind of legalization. Yeah. Well, that's a depressing way to conclude our discussion today, but I think there's some truth to it. Besides the advocacy groups, is there anything that federal and state policymakers should be thinking about here? In terms of the findings, I think they're crystal clear. And I think they should make people think, gee, if we stop this, it's not just a matter of helping those who are against it. It means specifically hurting, in a very clear economic way, same-sex couples. It's not just a matter of making people feel good. It's a matter of making them economically better. It's helping real people economically. It's not just touchy-feely stuff. That's the beauty of this paper. Mm -hmm. Well, it is a very nice paper. And I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk to us about it today. Our guest today has been Dr. Daniel Hammermesh, Distinguished Scholar at Barnard College and Columbia University, and the Chief Coordinator of the IZA Institute of Labor Economics Network. Thanks again for stopping by and talking to us about your important work. Thanks for having me, Seth. You take care. Yep. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.